The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Would you like to take your seats again? Bless the Lord. It's always good to be able to sing praises to God and to lift up His name. That's what we've come here for. Uh, my name is Jonathan McGill. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I also want to welcome you to this open house service. It's great to see visitors here. It's great to see our normal family friends here as well. We pray that you have a great time in the house of God this morning. It's a privilege for us here because on an open house Sunday, we have an invited guest. We get somebody to come to speak to us. And this morning, it's our privilege to actually have Alonzo Paul come to us. He works for the Ravi Zachariah Ministries. So that's a ministry that is uh, bringing the gospel to people and giving apologetics, explaining and expressing the gospel for people so that they can understand. Now, somebody mentioned about his accent. Alonzo is actually originally from Canada. And so there's a slight accent, but he is a man full of passion for the things of Jesus. He's worked in industry. He's worked in the oil industry. And uh, he left that. He became involved in e-commerce. What's e-commerce? It's where you're using the internet to push your business. And his business was that of male grooming. So if you're a male here and you feel ungroomed, then perhaps you could speak to him later about that side of the business, and he can help you about that as well. I'm glad to say that his business is thriving, and that's uh, across America, UK, and of course Canada as well. Alonso has mentored many people. He's been in prisons. He's been speaking in churches. He's been speaking to all sorts of people, but his message is that to encourage and to strengthen people in the knowledge and understanding of God. And this morning, or he's also studying, he's also studying at Oxford University, but that's just something he does on the side, just to keep his mind ticking over, as it were. Look, it's a privilege for us to be able to welcome Alonso, and he's going to give a message to us, so please welcome him as he comes to speak to us now. All right. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Am I turned on and everything? Great, great. That's always a weird phrase, isn't it? Um, great. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, before I begin, I feel like we have to give props where props is due. Your pastors or elders and your worship crew up here did such an amazing job. Can we show them some love and just give them some, a hand clap? In, uh, in, in Oxford, you know, like, I just, I don't get this kind of stuff. I don't get, like, I don't get the amens, you know, like, can I get an amen? And then the crowd actually respond uh, to that. In, in Oxford, it's, it's more proper, and you sit, and you listen, and you nod. And if you get a nod, that's something. That's the equivalent of a hallelujah standing up and clapping sort of thing. So to have, to be, now my inner Pentecostal can come out. And so I, I feel so good to be around you guys. And again, like, I want to just welcome, um, as well as the other people did, I want to welcome anybody that's new. 
Uh, I know that it can be an often strange experience at the beginning. Uh, I didn't, uh, I wasn't raised in a practicing Christian home. Uh, I was about 21 uh, when I uh, came to church and really started to understand who this person Jesus uh, is and who, um, that they keep talking about this cross and this resurrection and this hope and this love and all of these sorts of things. I didn't understand that. I didn't know that God actually loves people. I thought God was there to spite people. I thought he had a different role than the role that these guys were telling me. And so I, it's my, pre, uh, my privilege uh, to share with you guys a real special message, uh, and I've tailored it just for you guys, and it's called A Living Hope in the Midst of a Dying World. A living hope in the midst of a dying world. Now, as I begin, uh, I just want to thank Jonathan again. Uh, I'm studying uh, theology at the University of Oxford right now, and, uh, and, and my wife is generally with me, and uh, she's, she's really the creative genius behind our company. She's, she's brilliant. She's awesome. She's my bae. She's my boo. Uh, I love her so much. She, I think she's the prettiest girl on the whole wide world. Uh, if, if God made anything better, he kept it for himself. He gave me, he, she's awesome. And uh, her name is Khadija. Uh, she comes from this wonderful family that's a mix of Sikhs and Muslims. And, and she became a Christian at five years old. And um, I won't go into that too much. You can ask me afterwards. Also, if you have any questions about faith or any of those sorts of things, this is what I study. And I know that, if, especially if you're new, come and talk to me or one of the other uh, people on the leadership team, uh, because some of it can seem a little bit like, I just don't know what these guys are doing and praising and worshiping and singing and praying and all of these sorts of things. So please do come and talk to us afterwards and we can respond to some of your questions. A living hope in the midst of a dying world. You know, we humans have this longing on the inside of us, this deep need. It's almost like we're hardwired for hope. We know this from our everyday language. We hope that things are going to get better when we're going through a tough time. We hope for a brighter future. We hope and we dream, and when we, and we hurt when hopes are dashed. And when we hope, we ultimately hope for very meaningful things. We have some trivial hopes, but we hope for meaningful things when we hope. We hope for a better society. We hope for justice. We hope for restoration of broken hearts and broken relationships. We hope for true love. We hope for forgiveness when we've messed things up. And when many people in the academy, that's where I'm at, and when pe many people in the academy threw out this idea of God, they didn't stop hoping, they merely shifted their hopes to something outside of God. And they put their hopes in things like higher education, better psychology, better politics, freedom of sexual expression and identity, hoping to meet some deep need or desire internally or relationally. And although we've achieved many of these hopes, these secular or atheistic hopes, we've also achieved incredibly, we've been incredibly successful at achieving things like world war or sex trafficking 
and so on. Which means that we have to have serious conversations about these sorts of things. What happens when hope manifests itself in an unexpected way or has unexpected results? How does it affect our, ourselves intellectually or experientially, how we experience reality? How does it affect us? Or perhaps most importantly, what happens when our hopes die or are taken away? Uh, one of my favorite stories comes from a, a, a Jewish psychiatrist during World War II. His name is Dr. Viktor Frankl. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Dr. Viktor Frankl. Three of us, great. <laughs> um, Dr. Viktor Frankl, he was an amazing man. And so he was a Jewish psychiatrist and he, was, um, he got pulled into captivity um, into the Nazi death camp Auschwitz and became a prisoner there. And whilst he was there, he wanted to help out as many people as possible. So he would sit down and listen with people and, and see where they're at and try and help them the best that they can. You can only help people so much in a death camp, but he wanted to do that. And so there was one person that he writes about in particular that would come to him regularly. And this guy says to Dr. Viktor Frankl one day, he says, sir, I've had a dream. And he's, Frankl's like, what, what's the dream? Tell me. And he said, the war is going to end March 28th. And he says, oh, yeah, okay. And he took this, and, and not Dr. Frankel, but this patient took this seriously. He said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end on March 28th. And so he put all of his cards in there. He put all of his money in there. He put all of his hope in that, all of his stake in that. And it became an ultimate hope for him. When March 28th came... And the war didn't stop, but rather grew even more fierce. The man was devastated by the news. He was crushed. March 29th came around. He became intensely feverish. The 30th, he fell unconscious. And by the 31st, he had died. Dr. Frankel writes that he literally dies of hopelessness. That when that news came and his hope died, that it crushed him and so impacted him that even his immune system couldn't fight off the bacteria and disease that was in the death camp. He died of hopelessness. Recently, I was in your lovely city, London. This is part of London, right? Yeah? Okay. Canadian, right? Forgive me. Grace abounds over here. <laughs> and I was, in, uh, I, I was at this AI, which is artificial intelligence and uh, robotics conference. It was awesome. It was dope. Um, and I, I like learning about those sorts of things. And we got we to know about that kind of stuff because it's really fascinating, I think. And uh, so I'm at this conference in London, and, and leaders in, in these fields are discussing certain technological advances and the implication of those progress, the, the progression of those technological advances. So these are, these are crucial conversations. Well, why is that? Well, for instance, um, robots and AI are being designed for various tasks, such as visiting the elderly, which is a good thing, going to the sick and visiting the sick, the hospitalized, or they're looking at things like examining the utility of the sex bot, and it's usefulness of uh, companionship amongst lonely people, combating loneliness or aloneness. And so they're exploring and trying to navigate through these discussions. 
um, these various ethical discussions. So for example, if a, uh, a human being marries a robot, what is the psychological impact on the child when they come down from their bedroom and dad's new companion is a robot and not a human being? And how does that affect us? And they're also working, interestingly, on trying to overcome the problem of death. They're trying to, yeah, they just, you know, quantify it and, and make it a problem and, hey, how do we resolve this? How can we transcend the limits of our humanity? How can we lengthen our lives? This is where we get the word transhumanism from. You've heard of that before. We're trying to transcend our humanity. And we do this with genetic engineering and editing and replacing organs and cells and editing things and replacing things, transplanting. And also, very interestingly, they're trying to figure out how to upload our consciousness onto computers, onto cloud, to become immortal. And it's evident to many that not only are they allocating their resources into these endeavors, but also their hopes are placed in the progression of these technological advances. The hope that the robot and the AI will remedy our broken relationships, the sex bot. The hope that social media will sufficiently cultivate community and fix our deep sense of loneliness, the Insta story. And the hope that we'll achieve immortality and resolve the problem of death, the cloud of eternal life. Now, I'm not trying to like make these things sound super bad. There, there's some good utility that can, be, that can come out of these sorts of things. However, the problem is not when they put their, it is when they put their ultimate hope in these future endeavors. And from the secularist side, so people without God, they only believe in, in matter, and naturalism, right? Anything that's matter, matters, there's nothing outside, there's no spiritual realm, there's no God. Not all of them are so positive or so optimistic about these sorts of hopes. There's this atheist philosopher, his name is Bertrand Russell, and he writes, uh, he, he was a really influential atheist thinker in the 20th and 21st century, and he's influenced a lot of people in universities and in high schools, I guess you guys just call them schools, um, and, and those sorts of places. And, and his thoughts we have to take seriously because he's influencing so much of our, the millennials and post-millennials, our generation. And so listen to what he says because he's not as optimistic as some of these people making robots and things. He says this, Huma uh, humanity's origin Growth, hopes, and fears, loves and beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual's life beyond the grave. That all of the labors of our ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of humanity's genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of human achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Listen now, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now listen to me very closely here. This is what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. 
that at bottom, if there is no God, that whatever humanity puts its hope in, education, politics, technology, those sorts of things, it's ultimately problematic because it is ultimately meaningless. Because when the universe is frozen in 10 trillion years or whatever they, they say, and there's no God, what does it matter of what you accomplished, what you achieved, or how you acted? Who cares if you were Mother Teresa or Bin Laden? He's saying that whatever our hopes are, if they're in these things, they'll inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And even if we figure out how to upload our consciousness to a computer, we'll only live long enough to witness the extinction of the universe. It's all being built on this firm foundation of despair. Here's the point. Creating a society with advanced technologies and different things, a great society, being great, good people, very moral, very loving, very heroic, ultimately these things mean nothing if there is no God. Because death will conquer it all. If not humans individually, the universe entirely. That's the narrative and the reality of a dying world in need of a living hope. By contrast, the gospel is the good news. <laughs> it is the message which contains a living and active hope for a dying world. The Apostle Paul writes the following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy. Man, you got to love that God's great in mercy. He's not great in anger. He's not great in madness at you. He's great in mercy towards you. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who was crucified for his identity claim of being God, God in a bod, God in the flesh, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. His mission was motivated by perfect, inexhaustible love to reveal God's true nature and identity towards you and me, to identify with our humanity, to identify with our suffering and with our pain. He, and he gave up his life as a ransom. Why is that? He came to restore the shattered relationship between human beings and himself, to reveal, listen now, his great love for you and for me, to remedy our sin. Now, sin is an interesting word. Uh, I was reading this guy named Francis Spufford, and he says uh, our culture often thinks of sin as a yummy transgression. You, you know, they'll use it as a brand for ice cream or something like this, and, or, or, or some other, you know, I'll let your mind, well, you know, your mind shouldn't go there. Um, <laughs> the, but this is what actually what the Bible means when it says sin, very simply. Our brokenness, our lostness, and our darkness. And he came to remedy these things so that we would be made whole 
restored and forgiven. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but save it through him. How is that? By the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, demonstrating that sin and death will not ultimately conquer us and the universe, but rather he has conquered death and sin. Now, if Jesus is our living hope, then we need to be confident that he actually rose, that this is actually true and not just blind faith. I'm a man of faith, but we need to have confidence in it, especially when we're sharing it with our friends. And is there, some ask, a rational or a logical case that could be made for the resurrection? Or is it just, you know, conjecture? Is it just talk? And there are three main facts. I'll just very briefly go through them with you. And, uh, and then I'll tell you, um, well, well, then we'll close after that. But three main facts. Now, this is really helpful as Christians. I'll tell you why. Because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the core of Christianity, and it is also the most strongest and most robust case for Christianity. It is how we will demonstrate the truthfulness of the claim of Christianity, that God did break into creation and reveal himself and conquer sin and death. And so this is very, very important, especially when you're talking with friends that aren't Christians. So check this out. There are three main facts that are accepted by critical non-Christian scholars. So this isn't even from our team. This is from the other team. That three main facts that, that are accepted as truth, even in universities. And these are largely based on uh, the work of a professor, a distinguished professor named Gary Habermas. And he says, um, him and a bunch of other scholars say this. Number one, Jesus Christ died by crucifixion. That's the first fact of history. This is undeniable fact of history. Number two, Jesus' disciples genuinely believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to as many as 500 witnesses over the course of 40 days, including those who disbelieved in him. And number three, the early church grew rapidly in numbers after Jesus' death. Now, we have this mandate from the Bible, 1 Peter 3.15, that we should be able to give a reason for the faith that we have. Not only has Jesus Christ touched my heart, but I can give a reason intellectually for why I believe in the gospel and why the gospel is that living hope in the midst of a dying world. So these three facts, people try to explain them in naturalistic terms. So somebody that doesn't believe in God and they will just try and explain these using some sort of ex other explanation besides the resurrection. And they say this, it is either one of three possibilities. The disciples were deceivers, the disciples were deceived, or the disciples were deluded. Deceivers, deceived, or deluded. Number one, we'll go through them very, very quickly. Deceivers, perhaps the disciples stole the body of Jesus. To most scholars, this is rubbish. That's the technical term, I think, is, is that it's rubbish. It's just, it's just because in light of the immense and radical persecution, uh, there is just no reason why they would have stolen the body. 
or, or lied about st stealing the body. The reason is, you know, my, my colleague back in Oxford, he says this, you know, nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. The disciples and the other eyewitnesses had nothing to gave, gain socially or in terms of money or any of those other things. It wasn't a power play. And if they were lying about it, certainly somebody would have cracked under the immense pressure. And the radical transformation of the uh, disciples also has to be explained. They went from cowardice to courageous. Mostly the guys. The girls, they were awesome. They were, they, you know, besides John, they were at the cross. They were at the tomb. They, they never left Jesus. These guys abandoned Jesus in the garden when the authorities came to arrest him. So the girls, you know, oftentimes the girls are the heroes in Bible stories. I feel like that's legit. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you look at most stories, it's the same thing with my wife. She's always one step ahead of me in the will of God. And like, she always knows what's up. And it takes me a little bit more time uh, to discern that. Or she just tells me, in, in, anyways. Um, so, so, uh, so we have to explain this radical transformation where they go from abandoning Jesus to proclaiming the resurrection, even though there's radical persecution and ultimately martyrdom for all of them, except for John. And so the Japanese novelist Shikaro Endo, he writes this. This is awesome. You have to hear this. He writes this. If we don't believe in the resurrection, we, have to believe, we're, we'll, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, but equal force in its electric intensity, electrifying intensity. Number two, deceived. Perhaps the disciples were deceived, but we have to, we have to ask by who? Who would have deceived the disciples? Number one, perhaps, is the Romans. But we know that this is not the case. The reason is, is that they, they wrote on top of Jesus' cross, King of the Jews. This would have been an identity marker to say why this criminal was being executed. Because when the Jews said to the Romans, he claims to be the king of Israel, now he's committing treason against Caesar. And the Romans perfected murder. They perfected execution. There was nothing that could dare stand against the Roman Empire. They crushed everything and anyone that came across them. So we know it wasn't the Romans that would have deceived them. The, was it the Jews, perhaps? No. The Jews were the ones that cried out, crucify him. Why did they cry that out? Because Jesus, in their eyes, in Judaism committed the ultimate blasphemy. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Jews are radically monotheistic. They believe in, in one God. We're, we're Trinity believers, right? Most of us, you should be. Um, <laughs> um, so they're radically monotheistic. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, they say, crucify this man because he is blaspheming against God. This is, in, by stark contrast, this is not what society is saying. Society usually identifies Jesus as a good moral man or as a good moral teacher. That's wrong. You don't butcher a man that's just a good moral teacher. They killed him because he claimed to be God in the flesh. So it wasn't the Romans and it wasn't the Jews. 
Well, what's the next option? Perhaps they were deluded. Now, this is, this is so common to hear, especially on university campuses, that, oh, the, they, they were just hallucinating. There are multiple reasons why that's wrong. Cognitive scientists tell us that hallucinations can happen. Don't get it twisted. It can happen where you are devastated and you hallucinate because you miss the loved one, there's some psychological stress there, and you hallucinate and you think that you see the loved one that's just passed. But those are individual cases, as in an individual. The resurrection of Jesus, by contrast, is a group of people, a group phenomena that re happens repeatedly over 40 days plus, and has significant interactions. What are the significant interactions? They have breakfast together. They go, you know, they, he cooks breakfast while, the, while they're fishing. He says, touch me in a group of people. You know, Thomas puts his hands in his side in different things. These are significant interactions, more than just some mirage that happens to this individual, um, you know, by themselves in their bedroom, perhaps, or, or something like that, where it's questionable. These are significant interactions, repeated, and over the course of 40 days. And so he appears to also to people, um, people that don't even want to see him. Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, did not want to see Jesus, did not want to encounter Jesus. He was busy killing Christians. So he was a little bit preoccupied. He didn't have this psychological desire to go and see Jesus. But Jesus appeared to him, and he testifies to that. Same thing with James. You kind of don't blame James. James says that he doesn't believe that Jesus is God, like most siblings would not believe when their sibling says that they are God. And so that's understandable. But later on, he becomes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Number four, then what's, what's, what's the alternative explanation then? The alternative explanation is this, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the grave. You can only have so many logical options. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar from St. Andrews, he writes this, I've examined all of the alternative explanations, the ancient and the modern, for the rise of the early church. And I have to say that the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth really was raised to life. So what does this mean for you and for me? The life of Jesus is describing, you got to listen to me very closely here. The life of Jesus is describing when God broke into creation and through his death on the cross and his rising from the grave is a living hope because it is a hope for beyond the grave and it is a sufficient sacrifice and remedy for the universal human experience of brokenness, lostness, and darkness, our sin. Brokenness, we are keenly aware that something is broken on the inside of us. We have these deep desires to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, that no amount of money or relationships can ever satisfy on the inside. We just know intuitively there's something broken on the inside. There's something not right. I've been, I have this pain on the inside. I've been victimized on the inside. I, there's something broken. There's something not right here. We're also aware of our lostness. Just look at our culture today. We have no idea who we are, where we came from, what our purpose is, or where we're going. 
We're adrift. We're like what Isaiah says, sheep without a shepherd. Sheep going astray. We're adrift. We're lost. We don't know who we are. And our darkness. Now, darkness is interesting. Our culture is saturated by, steeped in, and thunders a victimhood narrative. That we're victims. And this is true to a large degree. Don't get it twisted. We, are, we have been victimized and we are victims. However, we are also responsible for victimizing others. And we're responsible for that. In our thoughts, in our actions, and what we've done or what we've failed to do. There's darkness deep on the inside. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says it like this. He says, from within, out of our heart, comes evil thoughts and evil deeds. That is what defiles us. The heart of the problem, Jesus says, is the human heart. Clinical psychiatrist and uh, psychologist, sorry, and public intellectual Jordan Peterson, he says it like this. This is really interesting. Don't agree with everything he says, but this is, I think this was on point. He says this. Human beings have a great capacity for wrongdoing. It's an attribute that is unique in the world of life. We can and we do make things worse. Voluntarily, with full knowledge of what we're doing, as well as accidentally and carelessly in a matter that is willfully blind. But no one understands the darkness of the individual better than the individual himself. Perhaps man is something that should have just never been. Perhaps the world should be cleansed of all human presence. I believe that the person who claims that they've never wished for such things has never consulted his memory nor confronted their darkest desire. From an agnostic, somebody that doesn't believe in God necessarily. However, when you invite Jesus into your life, which you can do today. I'm about to pray in a minute or two and help you with that if you've never done that before. When you invite Jesus into your life, his love, his life, his beauty, his strength, his grace, his forgiveness, it can radically set you free and transform you from the inside out. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before, or maybe it's just been a long time, but God's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. You're not, you're not a screw-up or failure. You're, you may feel like you are, just because you failed doesn't make you a failure. You're a masterpiece because you're a piece of the master. You've been made in his image, and you are valuable infinitely valuable to God and to the body, the, the church, the, the body of Christ. You're value, you matter, man. You matter. God's invested in you. He's invested everything. Listen, if, if God is real, what would gold be to God? What would diamonds be to God? To pay for you to come into heaven or to pay for your forgiveness. What would that be? There would be nothing. He owns the whole universe. The Bible says that he holds the universe in his hand. No, God bankrupt 
heaven by sending the most precious thing that he could possibly send, which is Jesus. I was listening to a man yesterday, and uh, it was during a workshop, and he was a leukemia survivor. And you know with leukemia, you need a bone marrow transplant. And very hard because he was of a rare, I don't know, DNA or blood type or something like that. And so they searched and they searched and they searched. This is just, I just heard this yesterday. And they're searching and searching and finally they found a donor. It was a German soldier. And the German soldier actually agreed to donate the blood and, and the marrow that this man needed in order to survive. He needed three transplants, and the man agreed. And he says, Alonso, this is really interesting because it's my, my, my type is so rare. This leukemia and different things, it's so rare that it's almost like this man was born to save me. This man's blood is going to save me. And when they did the transfusions of this new blood and this new marrow into the body, he's like, this is really interesting. My DNA starts changing. My DNA will begin to mirror and reflect this new DNA that comes on the inside of me from this German soldier. He says, Alonzo, this is what happens when Christ comes on the inside of you. He was born to save you. And by his blood, by what he did on the cross, we get a radical new DNA on the inside. We become new creations, beings of light and of love, forgiven and made whole. He he, he takes our brokenness and replaces it with his wholeness. He takes, he takes the darkness in us and replaces it with his life, with his light. He takes the evil in us and defeats it with his love and calls us to go and do likewise, to be representatives of Jesus in a broken world, rescuing a humanity. And every new person that, be, that accepts Jesus into their life, they get transformed on the inside into these Christians, these new creations, sons and daughters of God, forgiven, purified, made whole. And it's a progress, yes, but there is a radical transformation at the beginning. You're set free from sin and from darkness. And then we're called to be his torches, his light, going into a dark world and illuminating it, setting it free, helping out with the suffering and the hurting humanity, expanding the kingdom of God until the whole world, we participate in God's redemptive plan, his rescue plan for all of humanity. That's the good news. Now my time is done. And um, <laughs> let me just say this last thing. The greatest fear that humanity has, that you have, that I have, is to be fully known and rejected.
That's what we all want. We all want to be known to the bottom, our core, and loved. That's why, you, that's why your marriage is like the strongest relationship. It, it, it can go deep because you're revealing yourself more and more to this person with your friend, like your best mate. That's deeper, or that's deep, but it, it's not as deep as a, a marriage and an acquaintance is, is, is even more shallow because each person knows less and less about you, but we have this desire to be fully known. I want to bear it all out. I want to be transparent, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid if you see what's on the inside of me, you will not like me. You won't love me. You reject me. You won't accept me. With Jesus, man, you've got to read the Gospels. You should see how he treats the most broken, lost people on the planet. A woman at the well, for instance, different religion, different race, different gender, has six, five husbands and the sixth person that she's with, that she's housing with, isn't even her husband, which would have been appalling in her culture. And the tenderness as God shows that he knows you fully and accepts you and loves you. And nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Your conscience can't do it. Nothing can do it. Death can't even do it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that was shed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's the kind of love that you can have right now as we pray. I'm going to invite the keyboard gentlemen up. Thank you so much. And um, we're just going to have a moment here in a moment. Thank you again, Ken. Is that, is that right, Ken? Rick, sorry, Rick. What, do you, what are you going to play? What note are you going to play in? Yeah. I was preaching in that note, so that's great. <laughs> Nine years ago, when I first stepped into a church and actually heard about the Jesus of the Gospels that provides you and me this living hope beyond the grave and a hope to remedy what's broken, what's dark, and what's lost on the inside, I thought I had been lied to my entire life. I did not know that Jesus was actually like this, that God was actually like this, that he would hang out with the worst people in society I thought he only hung out with the best. I wasn't cleaned up. I was on opiates. I was snorting rails for breakfast. I was, I was smoking weed, drinking on um, opiates as like a heroin type drug when I first heard the gospel. And God met me in my brokenness. And he accepted me. He knew me completely. He made you. And the one that made you is the one that can heal you and restore you and make you brand new. This is what's available today. My life was radically changed. I remember for a long time I wrestled with guilt from all the bad things that I've done. Even after accepting Jesus into my life. The pastor, he said a very easy thing. He says, if you want to know that you're going to go to heaven when you die, 
that you have peace with God and that all of your sins and mistakes are forgiven. If you want that and a relationship with God, then you can have that right now. And I wanted that. I was broken. I needed saving. I needed rescuing. And even after that, I wrestled a bit. Saying, God, how, you know the bad things I've done. How could you forgive someone like me? And I remember just in my heart, God just saying, my son, I forgive you. You don't have to feel bad anymore. Jesus changes you from the inside. And that's what's available today. So I'm going to ask you just to honor the people around you by closing your eyes and bowing your head. And we're going to have a moment with God. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to pray with you. And then secondly, after this, we're going to have another song that we're going to sing. So if you feel like, man, I don't know God. I don't know Jesus. I don't know this forgiveness. I don't know this love. I don't have this relationship with him. My life is a mess. I'm broken and I need to be healed. I'm lost and I need to be rescued. And I can't do it on my own. I can't just try harder. If that's you, man, Jesus, that's the guy. You're the person that Jesus came for. So I ask, if that is you, I'm not going to embarrass you, and I'm going to make this very simple. This is a safe place. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three very quickly. Remember, every eye closed, every head bowed. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand very quickly and then put it back down. And before God, that's saying, I want Jesus to come into my life. I'm sorry for the things that I've done, my sins and my mistakes. And I want Jesus to come into my life to change me. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three. No one's going to invite you to the front. No one's going to embarrass you. None of that stuff. In fact, we have a gift for you. And we're, after you raise your hand, someone's going to give you a nice gift. So I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. You can put it back down. God sees you. God acknowledges you. Jesus is described as a shepherd. When sheep get lost, they can't find their way home. So what the shepherd does is he will put the sheep on his shoulders and carry them. He will make them lie down in green pastures, he will satisfy your soul. He will give you a joy and a delight that you think is so great you'll almost die from it. It's amazing. And you have peace knowing that God has forgiven you. 
forgiveness. What a gift. What a gift. You know when you're forgiven. Now I'm going to say a prayer and perhaps as a family, along with these new family members, because after you pray this, you're now in the family of God. You're a daughter and a son of God. You're in his family forever, an object of his love. We're going to pray this together as a family, out loud. It's very short and very quick. And repeat after me, Father God, I'm so sorry for the sins and mistakes I've done. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I believe that he died and rose from the grave. Come into my life, please. Change me. Rescue me. Show me how much you love me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Very quickly, before I invite you up here, or sorry, invite you up here. I'm so used to my, this church, this other church. Before I ask you to stand and we're going to sing another song, I just want to say, if you were one of those people that prayed that prayer, the silliest thing that you could do is not tell anybody. You may have already been given a gift or maybe they overlooked you by mistake. Tell one of these people they want to listen to you they're not going to judge you. They want to love you, and they want to help you. They want to help by giving you some resources and show you what the next step is. Is that cool? This is a safe place. It's a good place. It's a place that talks about peace and love and, and joy, and you're going to have a radically changed life. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much for giving me a, a hearing, and I'm going to now pass this over to... Sarah.